Welcome to episode 3 of season 2 of Delving Into Dance. In this episode, I chat with Daniel Jaber. Daniel's career started at the Australian Dance Theatre, aged 17. Daniel has danced around the world and is currently living between Melbourne and Los Angeles. In 2016, Daniel was working on a range of projects, including creating Star Dancer for the largest water screen in the world, in Dubai, and working as the ballet master and choreographer in Dance Mums in the US. Daniel teaches dance and is passionate about equipping the next generation of young dancers, working at studios like Transit Dance in Melbourne. In this conversation, we discuss making a career in dance, inspiration, dance for screen, dance mums, as well as advice for young dancers starting out. The first question I asked was, where did the passion of dance come from? That's a really nostalgic question, isn't it? Um, Well, my dance journey started at the age of four, which is almost too long ago to remember, but I remember exactly my motivation um, my amazing older sister had found a dance class in the local church hall. And the only reason we even bothered investigating anything to do in the evening was because my parents were greyhound trainers and racers. And we used to hate going on Tuesday nights. Like we lived in Nan, so we used to go to Gawler, which is like an hour and a half drive to race these greyhounds and finish at like 10 at night and drive back for another hour and a half. And it was just like, it was exhausting and we hated it and it stank. And um, so, yeah, my sister found these like jazz calisthenics classes and we just started going and I was a junior. There were only three classes, like real little kids, teenagers, and then older kids. And then within the first three weeks, I made such improvement (laughs) that I was allowed to do the senior classes. And then I begged to do the junior, intermediate and senior classes. So I was just, I must have fallen in love with it. And would practice at home every night until I got something right and became completely obsessed. Or make my sister be a body for me to make little dances on her. And I think, I guess that was the moment it just kind of took over my life. What was that about moving? You know, like I grew up in this little country town and I was one of the only ethnic looking kids. Um, I was very effeminate as a young dude um, and I hated talking. So at school I was essentially just mute and um, somehow when I started dancing, I felt like I was relieving myself of emotions and saying things that I wanted to say, even though I didn't have to say them. Um, and then I think, you know, it was, it was moving as much as it was just being around people who weren't as kind of judgmental or, um, potentially as conservative as the people in this town or the people at this school that I was going to. So I think um, movement gave me a greater sense of freedom and expression, which sounds really cliche. I'm sure like a lot of dancers would say the same thing, but it really does like affords you the opportunity to say so much if you're quite uncomfortable in public situations or if you've got any kind of social anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. So when did the leap, I guess, like um, 
it's one thing to practice it as a kid, mm. but then to go, actually, this is what I want to do for my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was, yeah, that was another process. So the woman that had this little jazz calisthenics school, she left after the first year. And she brought in somebody else to take over the school, but she said, look, you're really good. You should go to, like, a good school and do ballet. And then um, I found an amazing ballet teacher, Christine Underdown. And um, well, I think in my second year of training with Christine, she took me to see um, the Australian Ballet do a triple bill, which was a Nacho Duato work a work by Twyla Tharp and also William Forsyth's In the Middle Somewhere Elevated. And Forsyth's piece was the first thing of the pro- of the first piece of the program. And, um, like, from the moment that big smash in the music and those white lights came up and those two dancers standing there looking sexy as anything, I, like, I turned to her and I literally said, so, like, these guys get paid to do this, right? And she was like, yeah, like, if you want it to be a job, like, you can have a career, like, you can go and dance around the world and people pay you to do it. And I was like, maybe 10 years old. And I just like, that was the moment I just went, okay, I'm going to like invest all of my energy into making sure that one day I get paid to do this. And, and I did, like, it ignited me to work hard and take responsibility for my development for the next four years before I started full-time study. Yeah. Yeah. You started full-time study as, like, late in your teens? Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, well, I was junior associate with Australian Ballet School, which kind of meant nothing, but it gave me a bit of, I don't know, a bit of credit. Um, I was an interstate junior associate. Um, But then I was offered a position at Queensland University of Technology when I was 15 as, um, what did they call it? It was hilarious. Like, as this part of this special gifted artist program. So I didn't have to have finished high school like everybody else. I think they gave out, like, one um, one opportunity to each of the arts programs at QUT. And I was the recipient of that. So I went off to university when I was 15, like some little, like, mathematician prodigy or something, um, feeling all good about myself. But it was actually really tough. Like, I didn't realise how academic it was going to be. But also, like, 15 and everyone's, like, 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was legal drinking age and, like, really in that kind of uni crazy mindset. And I was just, like, this kid thinking he was going to full-time dance school. I had no idea how much it was going to open my eyes to kind of, you know, the social world yeah. that existed outside of Nan, South Australia, you know. So, you're, like, you started a lot in ballet and mm-hmm. then moved more into contemporary. Yeah. Well, I am, um, yeah. Jobs, I guess, for a while. Yeah. Well, even as a kid, I went to um, a competition school and an examination school. So my primary focus was on classical ballet training. Um, but then I also did jazz, tap, contemporary singing. Um, Hip hop wasn't around those days, but I'm sure I would have been really good at it. But um, yeah, I was always interested in versatility and um, understood from an early age how all being being proficient in many different genres could contribute to 
having a well-rounded career or something. Yeah. I don't know. I never kind of went, I'm only, I'm going to be a ballet dancer and that's it. I kind of, I would go and see musicals and think, oh, I'd love to do that. Or I'd go and see ballets and go, I'd love to do that. And then, and then I saw ADT. I thought, <laughs> that's probably what I'm going to do. And why was that? I don't know. You know, um, <clears throat> techno music, real ballistic choreography, um, a real savage use of classicism um, and entertainment more than anything. I had had exposure to contemporary dance before yeah. seeing Gary's work, but um, his work was the first to kind of really, really entertain and engage me. Um, yeah, I think that was it. And I thought, you know, uh, that's what I want to do to people. I want to entertain them and push their kind of, idea of what dance is and and then it just looked really hard as well like it looked taxing and difficult so like the challenge yeah yeah you've danced like across the world and you've Mm -hmm. worked across the world choreographing and doing different things Mm -hmm. do you notice big and significant differences depending on where you are Mm. as to what people think of as dance or what they do or practices Mm. Um, around that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, from a performer's perspective, what is required of you, say, um, between here and Europe is vastly contrasting. Um, but I think in Australia now we're sort of somehow, I don't know, aligning ourselves a bit more similarly. But I remember doing my first job in Europe in 2008. 2000, yeah, 2008. Um, coming direct from five and a half years full-time at ADT. And I was, <clears throat> I always prided myself on my technical proficiency and being really articulate and um, clean, mm. maybe. Um, and I remember that was something I was really criticised for by the choreographer, by the other dancers, was this kind of, you know, almost this you try too hard, you're... Yeah, you're too technical. You need to learn to let go of that. So there was like this huge shift stylistically. Um, but then also in how much of the work I was doing in Europe was improvisation based yeah. um, and not so structured. Um, <clears throat> but then you go to the States and it's somehow like the complete opposite. It's like it's so demanding. There's so much demand for spectacular commercial tricks. And um, impressing your peers and your audience through this kind of, yeah, this spectacle-driven velocity, I guess. Um, Yeah. So where would you sit now? Do you have a preferred... Or do you sit across a few or... I sit across a few, I think. You know, like it's been interesting... The last year I've taken a conscious like evolution through my choreographic work at least and and allowed myself to understand that it's okay to work in many different ways and in many different genres um so I used to put a lot of pressure on myself to be the abstract classicist or to be the contemporary artist um but now I really love doing commercial things I love making competition routines. I love the lyrical genre. It really kind of inspires me somehow. 
But whereas I think I used to carry a lot of shame with wanting to do that because I existed in the Australian contemporary dance climate. And it's, yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of let go of um, other people's expectation or pressure and just kind of do what I want to do because I want to have a good career. So, like, if you'd asked me five years ago, oh, would you consider choreographing for Dance Mums? I would have answered you with such a pretentious attitude. But I was like, it's all opportunity. You know, and I think that's why I just kind of let all of that shit go. All of that shitty, like, I'm a contemporary. All that stuff. Which, like, carries a lot of weight on you here, I think. Like, I don't know if you see or feel or... Yeah, I think there's all this idea around being a sellout if you're going to do yeah. other stuff. And, yeah. Um, I think... So I, I kind of understand the argument, but then at the same time, you've got to eat and yeah. you've got to do the things that you want to do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be doing stuff that you're really passionate about and yeah. be getting paid for it. Yeah. Or you can be doing that one day a week and then working in a cafe for yeah. the rest of the time. And yeah. I think it's... I think as long as you're enjoying what you're doing, it's not really selling out on anything. You're actually just pursuing opportunities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I do say that a lot. I think it's it's real. Yeah. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It's very real. Do you think, like, your work now has its signature, despite being, I guess, eclectic in some respects? Do you have your own style? I don't know if I have my own style. Like, at one point I was thinking I did, and I don't think that high kicks and lots of turns is a style. I just think it's, like, something I really love. So I think I just invest a lot of the things I love with the dances that I love into my work. But um, also, since being in LA, I have to... Like, so much of my work now is not my vision coming to a fore. But in fact, it's the vision of a creative director or, um, yeah, I, I need my, a lot of my work now is making somebody else's vision come to life through movement and through choreography, which has greatly advanced my kind of understanding of how people view dance yeah. um, and given me much more, I guess, responsibility in my work to make a product that, yeah, it just makes more sense, I think. So that's driven, the yeah, that's also in my own work given me the opportunity to have more bravery because some of these ideas and themes and concepts that these people give me I never would have broached as a choreographer in my own creative pursuit. But now I kind of, now I can and I don't feel as shy from it. I don't feel shy about emotions and I don't feel shy about narrative. Um, in fact, I want to embrace that. So that's, I guess, been the biggest, yeah, the biggest shift. But no, stylistically, no. No, I don't think so. Um, I was speaking to uh, somebody that used to be a dancer the other day and they left because they found it, like, hot, like too highly competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I guess there's this perception that dance is very competitive and bitchy and, like, infighting and, you know, like, there's this idea that's Mm -hmm. kind of out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Is it true? Depends. Yeah, like, it depends. Like, of course it is. 
Yeah, it is. In dance, I find you you have your you create family. Like there is there is this sense that the global dance community is a network. Um, but at the same time, we're all fighting for jobs. We're all fighting for funding. We're all fighting for that next commission or that next gig that's going to kind of promote us or give us a, a new path or a new door. So I think it would be silly to think that it wasn't competitive. And I think, um, yeah, if you want to get ahead, I think you have to, in a way, enjoy competition in a sense. But I think there's also a way to compete that isn't nasty. And I think a lot of those nasty people that compete from a place of, yeah, from a place of ego and bitterness and jealousy, I think that they don't often succeed. But I think that competition is really healthy, actually. It pushes you to do better work. It pushes you to advance your technique. It pushes you to visualise your next idea greater and better than ever. Um, yeah, so for me, competition's been a theme and it's been really healthy yeah. to my development. They said there was a difference between um, being male and female in terms mm. of that competition mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, when I was young, for example, all the opportunities were thrown at me because I was a boy who could dance and I could do it well. Um, but now I think that's shifted. Like now I think it's shifted for both genders, in fact. Mm. Like women are now, you know, it used to be even when I was training, it was like boys do certain things and girls do certain things and they don't cross over and they don't bleed and they don't blend. Um, but now I think the demands on both male and female are to execute the exact same vocabulary. And I think that's really, really cool because I think there were excuses made for that for a really long time um, that weren't necessary or something um, and probably driven by dancers needing to have a particular body type. Um, but then, yeah, choreographers have kind of demolished that, especially over the last 15 years. And I think, yeah, and so now I think it's just as competitive for mm. both genders, whereas before, for sure, it was e- I, w- I would say it was easier for boys. Mm. There were less of us, you know, and, yeah, it's a lot more women that try and pursue professional careers than men. Mm. Yeah. Looking back at, like, I guess your performance career and, like, performing... Are there highlights? Are there particular shows or particular moments that stand out? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, doing Bird Brain by Gary Stewart, like a huge, that I still consider that one of my life's blessings. That was the first show of his I ever saw and was the pinnacle moment where I decided that I wanted to work with him. And then um, I actually saw Tanya Liedke performing it and I just watched her from start to end with my jaw on the floor and then you know four years later I was dancing her role and uh, there's just something really special about that and we toured it for years so it was the first show I ever took on tour so it was the first time I ever went overseas and yeah that was probably I'll, I'll always hold that as like my yeah my most precious experience as a performer um and then also, I guess, doing my solo show, Too Far Again, Not Far Enough, was special. Yeah. It just took many, many years to create. And um, it was very, very personal and very uncomfortable, but um, it all worked. What was that and, about? Um, it was about, I think, 
probably just identity. Identity and coercion. So it was, um, I started with a story of um, a gay boy in Maine, in the United States, who was beaten and thrown off a bridge. And then this, for me, raised a number of questions about identity, religion, um, how we grow up, what decisions we make being in a small town and being, I guess, stereotyped and facing aversion um, for our sexuality. And then this deviated into five vignettes. Um, and then that was the piece itself. And um, the final product, which was presented three years after, four years after its first incarnation, um, ended up being entirely improvised as well. So that was like a bit of a breakthrough moment for me as somebody who's so structured and rigid as a performer, I suppose. So, yeah, they're my two highlights. I've got two. When you say it was improvised, do you find yourself doing stuff that's familiar to you or are you improvising and going into areas that are completely unsafe? Is it like, I guess, is it structured, improvise, structured in the improvisations or is it quite fluid? Well, with this solo, it was quite structured because I had already performed two versions of it. And the first version was choreographed step by step by step. Um, The second version was, I think, three scenes choreographed and two improvised. Um, And then the final version, it was in a double bill and I had a week and a half to finish the other piece. So I just didn't get the chance to like work on my solo until opening night, which was fucked. Like I wouldn't suggest it. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I, I, yeah, I literally went on stage on open night and I had to improvise, but there was somehow like this four years of knowledge and practice and information that I could um, maybe access. Um, but I like working with a good director that can get me out of my comfort zone and make me improvise in a way that I would never think that I could. Like Gabrielle Nankerville does that with me. Whenever I improvise with her, I like feel like this radical wild beast. And but there's also some directors that I think the information they give me just kind of mm, it does it maybe doesn't go far enough through the surface for me as the insecure technical boy to have the confidence to just unleash that on my own. So for me, it's a like it's a fine balance because it's a very vulnerable experience, um, and I'm not very confident with it. So, um, yeah, it just takes a good director to get me to, yeah, get there. But it's both. So when you're choreographing, do you think about, um, I guess, those different approaches? or Yeah. Like- yeah. The first thing I do is read the energy of each dancer and, like, try and understand what their, not even what their strengths and weaknesses are, but what their interests are. So, and you can see really quickly, okay, there's dancers in this room that just want to learn steps and there's dancers in this room that want to be really, really pushed physically. And there's dancers in this room that don't want to be pushed at all. And there's dancers in this room that are really hungry to improvise. There's dancers in this room that are really hungry to act. Like you kind of look at their background, where they've come from and what they kind of want to do. And then that's how I want to get the best out of them. So... Yeah, then I'll just usually set them tasks with what I think they want to do 
and what they need to do in order to be really inspired. Yeah. Um, and then just feed in that other stuff in little increments so they barely even notice. So when you're teaching then, what, what are the elements that you try and get across? Because there's technique <laughs> and there's stylistic things and then mm-hmm. there's attitude and there's a whole range of things that you can mm-hmm. teach. Mm-hmm. But you're so all-rounded in so mm-hmm. many of the ways that you think about stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that something you can teach? Well, my philosophy as a teacher is I want students to have careers um, and what career that is is their own journey, it's their own path. I can't kind of point them in a direction. Um, But what I can do is give them a knowledge of um, the skills required to go out and do an audition in any kind of genre and in any kind of capacity. So most of my teaching work, yeah, there's a lot of technique, there's a lot of work on bravery, There's a lot of work on overcoming aversion. There's a lot of work with dealing with stress. There's a lot of work with taking responsibility for your attitude and your dancing and your improvement and development. Um, So, yeah, as a teacher, I give them a class that goes something like kick, turn, release, drop to the floor, kick, jump, tumble, up. Like I try and make it as kind of versatile within any kind of given exercise as possible because I don't teach a particular method or a particular style. Um, But it's more about their kind of brain power and getting them to think and getting them to understand. And now I demonstrate less when I teach so that I can see the room and I can give more information. Um, I used to demonstrate everything and then I would miss half of what they were doing. Um, but then also, yeah, vocabulary, terminology and understanding of dance history is really important. Um, yeah, there's a lot in teaching Mm. that's, yeah, for me more than just giving them a good class that they think is cool, even though that's what they usually want. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's education. So what advice do you have to young dancers if they do want to pursue a career? That That you can that you can and that every single person that you're trying to get to notice you knows if you're working at your full potential or not. Um, So that's my theory in teaching students. It's like anything will happen and can happen so long as you believe it and you work every second that you can to your full potential. Yeah. Yeah complacency will kill the opportunity to make it in this industry as it gets more and more and more ferociously competitive and jobs get less and less and less. But I think what people are looking for certainly is like strong-minded, creative, um, ambitious and positive people to be around. Mm. Yeah. I was um, finished writing a chapter the other day Mm -hmm. on dance and desire. There's a lot of stuff written about sexuality in dance and Mm. sensuality Mm -hmm. and how historically it's been kind of downplayed or denied. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of people report, like dancers report, that actually when they're dancing, they want to have a sexuality to what they're Mm -hmm. doing. They want to be desirable. Mm -hmm. Is that something that dance still tries to deny or downplay? Like that idea of sensuality and sexuality Mm -hmm. is so often removed, I guess, or ignored? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of dance shows where I go, wow, this is really unsexy. And I don't know why, because it is, uh, it's the the human body moving in amazing, beautiful ways. I think there's nothing more sensual than dance, probably. 
maybe nothing more sexual than dance in a sense. Um, but um, I guess we don't think about it the same as what people would have in the past. Mm. I mean, I I would reflect upon the ballerina's phallic point by Susan Foster mm. and how, um, you know, in the early days of classical ballet, like in, you know, late 1800s, how even how they touched each other would have been perceived as such an erotic and intense sexual moment. Mm. Um, but of course, yeah, that's kind of, we've evolved and we've changed in how we look at those things. Mm. The marketing and advertising is so pronounced in its overt sexuality. So maybe we're kind of not there anymore. Like at the forefront of that kind of, this is what physicality can look like between two people or between a mass of people. Um, I would like dance to be a bit sexier, but sexier in general, not in a, of course not in a gratuitous way, but just, yeah. I think, more attractive in general. In terms of a career, there's yeah. not many spaces in which you're actually eliciting desire or sexuality mm-hmm. in such explicit ways. Yeah, no, there's um, and not. that makes it quite unique, I think, yeah. as a performing art. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than being on stage as a dancer and feeling like, you know, like when it's just you and hundreds of people are looking at you, I think, um, yeah, yeah, you do feel desirable for sure. You feel incredibly powerful. You feel intoxicating. Um, And it's probably a confidence in an area that many of us maybe lack outside of that space, which is the stage or which is the performance. Mm. Um, Yeah, like I used to love getting naked on stage, but I used to not love it so much in normal life, for Mm. example, but I always felt really confident on stage doing it, which is weird in front of like hundreds of strangers, but it gives you, yeah, it gives you a power and a sense of status and, um, what makes you feel so powerful in that moment or gives that permission? You know, I think there's an understanding that what you're doing is looked at from many eyes that perhaps couldn't accomplish these things on their own. And so, I don't know, certainly when I look at artists working, like I can't paint or sing, there's this, um, yeah, I find that desirable, you know, like there's a, there's a part of me that kind of wishes I had that talent or I, I can easily look at those gifts in awe. And so I think there's an assumption that that's what people are doing with you. Um, that and when you give a really good performance, like a really authentic, genuine performance, you know that you've somehow transported them. Um, and then there's this, maybe you think that that's a fantasy that's left in their mind forever. Like that's what I used to think was, you know, maybe these people will remember that moment I did on stage forever. Maybe they won't. But maybe in 10 years, they're, I'm going to like flash up in their mind and they're going to think, oh, that, I remember when he, oh, yeah, I just had this thought of that dude doing that thing. Well, because you remember so many performances that you've seen. Yeah. Life-changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so why wouldn't others? Yeah, exactly. And so there's something, yeah, there's something, I don't know, archaeological or something about it. You know, you're making a little tattoo or an imprint on somebody's memory. 
So there are performances that go really well. What about the ones that go horribly? Or don't I, feel as good? I learnt to let them go really quickly. And Gary helped me with that because I was highly anxious and very nervous performer when I first joined the company. Um, I was in a traineeship for three months and I went on stage and I, I fell over out of something and I ran up to him after the show and I was crying and I was like, you're not going to offer me a job now, are you? Like, I fell out of that thing. And he was like, just don't be stupid. Like, you're not a machine. Like, we can't expect every night to be the same. You know, it's always going to be different. Um, that really, like, humbled my sense of what can happen and what can't happen. Um but yeah, it took a lot of, I saw a sports psychologist and learned to like, just let it go. And like, it was about learning that you can't change the past, which was much more a life lesson than a dance lesson. But like, yeah, okay, I fell over on stage. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, make up for it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, this year you've been doing, or last year, I should say, you did Dance Mums mm-hmm. and then you did... Um, the star dancers, mm. which is also very different in terms of yeah. a recorded dance yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Do you want to talk about like the different things you've been doing? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, I've worked with Ballerina Black a lot on their music videos. Um, I've been doing last year and this year working on, um, oh yeah, last year now. Yeah. yeah I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Last year, end of 2015, started working on Dance Moms as choreographer and coach, um, and Star Dancer, which was this multi-million dollar project for Dubai Festival City, which was, oh, amazing, amazing. Uh, so all of these things I've been doing while I've been away. Star Dancer we created in Sydney, so that was a local project, and everything else has been in LA. Um, working in, yeah, in film and television, um, has essentially brought me back to study. Like I really had, I was very experienced in making work for stage and even making work for spaces, but live work. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, I really kind of had to reteach myself in a way and um, find new mentoring for creating work that was, suitable for film and camera, mm. which is actually very different for me and challenged me in all the right ways because that's what I wanted and that's what I needed was a challenge and there was nothing more challenging. So, um, but I've loved it. I've loved, I loved working on Dance Moms. It was really like, you know, I, I didn't have too much involvement with the mothers so I was just in, you know, I did all that stuff that you guys don't see when you watch the show, which was training and rehearsing these kids that work their asses off to bring amazing new routines to the show every single week and fly around America doing press and interviews and then fly back to LA at 2am and then come to class at nine and work their asses off all day until six. And it was just amazing. And it really gave me a love of teaching children teaching children um and also took me back to competition land which is where it all started which was very good for my inner child i think um star dancer was another amazing opportunity i collaborated with laser vision media um on a solo performance for jessica hesketh 
who's a very, very good friend of mine. So we had a very intimate and beautiful time creating that. And that premiered in Dubai on December 26th. Um, Guinness World Record for largest water screen projection, which was, that was crazy. I think Jess's dancing body is something like 35 metres tall. And then she dances up to the intercontinental and throws planets around and smashes shit up. And it's really spectacular. Um, But yeah, all of these projects, like we said before, were like very much me taking the responsibility of having another person's vision come to life. So yeah, it's been, yeah, really, they're really different processes because I, um, although it's a huge responsibility because you don't want to disappoint anybody, you want it to look exactly like what it looks like in their mind and usually they're not dancers. Um, It teaches you to talk about dance in a different way that not only dancers understand, um, it teaches you, and yeah, just so much emphasis on collaboration, which I've found really, really cool. When you say speak about dance in ways Mm. outside of dance, Mm. um, yeah, how do you find that language to explain what you're doing or what you're thinking or... I find it really hard. Like, I find it really hard. You know, there's... Dance is a vocabulary and a terminology that is learnt and studied. And when a dancer says to another dancer one thing, it's... it. You feel it physically. Like, mm. your muscles engage in what that experience is. Um, talking about tension or quality or what kind of emotion you want to speak through your body... But when you're talking to somebody who doesn't have that knowledge or even basic dance steps, like, you know, you find yourself going, oh, yeah, well, okay, you wanted to do, okay, yeah. What if she does like a plie? You know, and for most people, it's like, you know, and then you have to, you just have to go back to the basics. For me, it's like, it is like talking to a little kid, but without sounding condescending because they're grown adults paying you a lot of money. So <laughs> I don't know. I like, I, I try to use a lot of visualization and I try and use a lot of photos or pictures on my phone of like colors or fabrics and textures and yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. And then also that difference between doing something that you said before that's live mm. and something that's recorded mm-hmm. for the screen mm-hmm. for what all sorts of yeah, different screens. Water. Yeah. 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 Um, that must be an interesting kind of, I guess, way of rethinking. Yeah. You know, yeah. It gives you a whole range of different possibilities that you can't do on stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So through the, you know, beautiful use of editing, you can create all of these illusions and these wonderful things that you wish you could do on stage, you know. Like how often I've been making a piece and going, God, it'd be amazing if she just disappeared there. Like then it would be like blackout, a huge applause. But yeah, you can't do that on stage. You've got to be a bit more strategic and pragmatic. But um, in terms of choreography for film and for the camera, it's just, yeah, like the scale is so much different. Like, so I can't get away with little quirky, intricate, articulate things. Like it's got to be big. It's got to take up the screen. It's, yeah, it's got to, yeah, the drama has to be amplified and yeah, the scale and the proportion is is different. That was the biggest thing I learned. Have you seen the? So you haven't seen the film? No, I've been yeah. I've just been looking at everything online and 
Wow. Yeah. That must be weird not being there and seeing it. Oh, it's super weird. So opening night was seen by 17,000 people. And so I saw a little clip that the guys at Laser Vision sent me and it was wild. It was like, you know, everyone's got their phone out now filming it. So it was like, you know, the old cigarette lighters or candles. It was just like this swarm of glowing cameras and just and people screaming. And it would have been really special to have been there for that. But it was just on a really crappy day. December 26th, so... So I'm gonna see your, one of your most watched works. Well, no, because the choreography I did on Dance Moms gets seen by six million. So, <laughs> yeah, not so really. <laughs> but for sure, like in, in a live sense, absolutely. They're probably the most spectacular thing I've ever done and maybe ever will do would be this project. Yeah. Mm. Is there more... Yeah, I guess are you going to keep moving more in that direction? Mm. Yeah. I'll never say no to dance moms. There's a couple more things in LA this year for um, television. So, and it's kind of, it's something that I've really just kind of skimmed the surface with. So I want to keep like charging at it and, um, but yeah, I, yeah. And also, yeah, I will always love making stage shows. They're really special. Yeah. They're really special experiences. With such a passion for dance, what would you do to fill your days if it wasn't for dance? Eight. Probably eight. <clears throat> wow. That's depressing when you can't answer that, isn't it? It's like, who am I? No, but... Uh, yeah. well, maybe it's not depressing because it means you're actually <laughs> good to do what you want to do. And yeah, you're not well... doing other things that's... to, you know... Well, the question comes at the perfect time because I've just had two weeks this is my third week off. And so while I've not been teaching or choreographing, I've not been in a studio. Like I've just been listening to music and writing, consolidating ideas and booking work for the next year. So it's like, it's not been off at all, but it still feels like a holiday. Yeah. Um, but like I, I would, I would probably cook a lot and just cook and eat. Like I think I've adopted that from my family, you know, something communal and joyous about feeding people. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, the world of a freelancer is not easy in the sense that you don't know where your next gig is and you're mm. always kind of lining up stuff yeah. and one project ends and mm-hmm. there's something else that starts or you hope something else starts. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's quite stressful for a lot of people. Yeah. How do you balance that? Um, yeah. How do I balance that? Well, I try to line up work as quickly as I can. So I usually focus the last quarter of the previous year on really nothing but securing jobs for the next year. And I might sometimes only have three and they might not be till the middle of the year, which kind of poses the question, what the hell am I going to do for the first six months of the year? Um, It still kind of gives me enough motivation not to give up um but it's yeah it's really hard it's hard being your own manager it's really hard being your own manager because everybody wants to screw you over and not through i don't think people are being particularly mean by doing so or comes from a bad place but 
like finances are always an ugly thing to talk about. Um, Demanding what you're actually worth and what you need is hard because we come from this culture of, oh, yeah, I'll do anything and I'll do it whenever you want and I'll do it for free. And so um, it's, yeah, it's hard being your own lawyer. Um, It's hard scheduling things because always get two things that are on at exactly the same time. Um, Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's like, it's hustle. It's like nonstop hustle. It's like being in LA, you know, it's like you go to choreographic submissions or castings just all day long with no security that it's actually going to amount to anything, but you go anyway because you have to. And, like, I like that philosophy for here in Australia, you know, except it's not submissions and castings. It's, like, just sending emails constantly to people. It's like, you know, you've got to be a little bit, somewhat a little bit aggressive to get things done. I think being too... Like, so- if something comes up and it's, you know, it's somewhat loosely promised, I will ensure that it comes to fruition mm. and as quickly as possible. I mean, just because I want to contribute and I want to keep doing what I do. It's important, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more, head to delvingintodance.com where you'll find a list of episode notes and links to Daniel's work. You can also find previous episodes from the likes of Gideon Obazanic, Lucy Guerin, Deborah Jowett and Raphael Bonicella. You can find Delving Into Dance on Twitter at Delving Dance. On Facebook, just search Delving Into Dance. And on many podcast platforms, including iTunes. Stay tuned for more wonderful episodes covering all aspects of dance.